It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our Tuesday edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. I'm Dan Lobby, and today Mary Kay Cabot jumps on for our Hey, Mary Kay edition of the podcast, where we take questions about Nick Chubb and a possible extension, Baker Mayfield and possible extension, where the Browns roster stacks up, and so much more. So check that out coming up on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Before we get to that, of course, I'll tell you how to become a football insider subscriber. All you have to do is go to cleveland.com slash browns, click the blue banner at the top of the page to get info and get signed up. You get an exclusive newsletter delivered to your inbox every single day, written by a member of our Browns reporting team. You can be one of our tech subscribers, and you get access to those exclusive stories on cleveland.com slash browns. All right, here we go. Our Tuesday Hey Mary Kay edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Okay, let's get right to it. From the 304 area code, of course, people want to talk extensions. This one has to do with the Nick Chubb extension. So, hey, Mary Kay, the extension of Nick Chubb is the most pressing issue that our Football Insider subscriber here has. Extending running backs is a debatable issue, but this person feels as though Chubb is not your typical running back and is such an integral part of the Browns' offense. So what are your thoughts on whether and how much the Browns should pay and extend Nick Chubb? Well, I I think that Nick Chubb and his agents are going to feel as though uh, he should be paid as one of the top three or four running backs in the NFL, which would put him up into the stratosphere of, you know, some of them are making, I think the top one is Christian McCaffrey at, I think he's at around $16 million a year. And then it goes down to about $12 million a year. So I would have to think that Nick Chubb and his agents are going to want him to be paid at least around 12 or $13 million a year. Now that's not really something that, you know, that the analytics folks really like to do with a running back on their second contract uh, because the numbers usually don't bear that out, that it's worth it. As our subscriber mentioned, Nick is not your average running back. He does sort of transcend the position in a lot of ways. He's arguably the best pure runner in the NFL. There are dual threat running backs that do more and do different things, but Nick is the best or one of the best pure runners in this league. So I think he's going to be worth an extension. I think they're going to work hard to get it done. I I also think that there's some goodwill and some PR. I think the Browns understand uh, that that's part of it when when you're talking about Nick Chubb. You can't really turn your back on a Nick Chubb or try not to pay him what he's worth, even though that might be the analytics way of doing things. That's just not going to fly. So I think that they will pay him the extra money it will take to get this thing done. I also think they will try to be very creative with incentives. 
uh, and, and give him an opportunity to achieve and make all the money that he believes he's worth and the Browns believe he's worth. And I think they'll come up with something that works for the club and works for Nick. One more thing real quick on this is that Nick has already stated that this is where he wants to be. He doesn't like the uncertainty of starting all over somewhere else. I think that will also work in the Browns' favor. I see them getting something done. I think they will too. And, you know, it's one of those things where you're always, it's always risky paying a running back. And, and, you know, we've said this a million times on this pod, the guy that you always say is the guy you have to pay ends up not being the guy you have to pay. But I I just don't see the risk in paying Nick Chubb. You, You add four years to the deal. You can get out of it if you need to. He's either great for four years or if you need to get out of it later, you can. And for people who are concerned, I I just wanted to look this up. For people who are concerned about the other extensions coming, you know, Patrick Mahomes' cap number this year is $7.4 million. And he signed that huge extension. So, you know, like if they extend Baker, it's not going to kick in right away. They're going to get creative with the cap numbers. They're going to do all of that stuff. Same with Denzel Ward. They're going to be able to manipulate the cap however they need to. To, to fit everybody in. So I don't think Nick Chubb is going to prevent them from extending anybody else. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. And it's funny that you bring up that Patrick Mahomes contract because I've talked to uh, some people that have poked some holes in that contract of Patrick's. As we've talked about many times, usually the number that you use to discuss a contract and when you're talking about highest paid in the league. It's the average per year that these guys are getting. And Patrick is tops amongst quarterbacks with $45 million a year. But if you have that contract up there, Dan, I think that his signing bonus was not that big. I think his guaranteed money in the deal is somewhere around $141 million or something like that. But the signing bonus was not that big at all. It was actually rather small, like $10 million or something like that. And, and the contract is spread out over 10 years. So there were some people that I talked to that, that didn't think that that deal looked as good as it did at first blush. But some of the other deals that quarterbacks have received recently, like Dak Prescott, Deshaun Watson, and some of the other ones are uh, you know, just the, you know, the typical four or five-year deal with the huge signing bonus. I, I would expect that Baker will receive a signing bonus in the thirties. And that's another reason why, you know, the timing can be significant because, you know, you gotta, you gotta go to the bank and you gotta get, you have to get that money out, right? Like today when you sign that contract. So, you know, if you can hold off on that a little bit uh, you know, there is a little bit of wisdom in that. Yeah. I, I've got my home's contract up here and it would take two hours to go through this whole thing. But right. if, if people have a chance, Go to overthecap.com and look up Patrick Mahomes' contract, and you'll kind of see. Now, the cap numbers get big. They get into the 40s. They get into the 50s towards the end. But I don't, I don't know if we'll, if this contract and its current iteration isn't going to see 2031. It's going to get renegotiated and redone probably 50 times before then. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty complicated $500 million contract, to, to say the least. Now, look, speaking of extensions, Mary Kay, you wrote about Baker Mayfield's extension over the weekend. So where is that at right now? Uh, Yeah, I thought it was important to kind of reset where that's at and to maybe manage expectations a little bit uh, and sort of let people know what's really going on with this. The two sides, and I've talked to, you know, people involved, the two sides have not had substantive talks yet on this deal. They have not exchanged proposals or numbers. They haven't said, hey, is the number 36 or is it 38 or is it 30? 
that hasn't happened yet. That will happen, and it probably will happen fairly soon where they start kicking those numbers around, but that hasn't taken place yet. And there's not a huge sense of urgency to get it done before training camp. I would be shocked if it gets done before training camp begins. Now, there is a chance it will get done before the season starts, but I think in a perfect world, what I think the Browns would really like to happen, I think they'd like to see Baker play another six, seven, or eight games so that they have a body of work under one coach that adds up to almost a season, okay? Because the first half of last season wasn't what Baker was going to be. And we know that 2019 wasn't what Baker was, but he started to be who they think he's going to be for the foreseeable future midway through last season. So if you take that and then you add it into the first half of this season, if everybody can be patient and wait that long, then you're looking at one full season, basically stuck together under the Kevin Stefanski regime and offense to say, here's what this guy is capable of with what we have going on now. It's really not fair to judge him under what was going on with Freddie Kitchens, because that's not here anymore. That was discombobulated and it's not fair to judge Baker by that season. What you have to judge him by and what you have to predict the future on is what he's going to do with these coaches in this system. And we got a good look at it in the second half of last year, but I think they want to see that over 16 ish games. Again, I think in a perfect world, the Browns would probably like to wait until around October to get this thing done. And it gives Baker Mayfield an opportunity to say, See, see who I am under Kevin Stefanski over 16 games. I'm as good as anybody in the league. I'm, I'm as good as uh, I've got numbers that stack up with, you know, Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes and even Tom Brady over, uh, you know, over a full season. Because in the last seven games of last season, he was ranked the number two quarterback in the NFL by pro football focus. That's pretty darn good. And that was behind Patrick Mahomes. If you can stretch that out over 16 games, you're going to make yourself some extra money. And I think that's in the back of Baker's mind too. The other important thing to note here is that Josh Allen's contract and Lamar Jackson's contract are going to matter. There is no way that Baker Mayfield's agents are going to let those guys get $42 million a year and have him get paid 35. That is not going to happen. And that is also why if you give him an opportunity to show what he can do over another seven or eight games, he can say, look, I'm one of those guys and I need to get paid like one of those guys. So I think there is some merit in both sides giving this a little bit of time. Okay. So you mentioned those two other quarterbacks and I'm going to go to Jim in Boardman's question here. Hey, Mary Kay, when it's all said and done, did the Browns pick the third best quarterback in the 2018 draft? That's an interesting question. It's one we're going to ask for a long time. I guess for me, I've always sort of contended that I don't know if if Josh Allen would have survived here <laughs> based on this organization. Go back and look at his rookie year numbers. I don't know if he would have survived here. I, I don't hold anybody responsible for passing on Lamar Jackson because everybody passed on Lamar Jackson. The Ravens passed on Lamar Jackson. But it's, it's still kind of an interesting question, especially with everybody coming up for these contract extensions. It's a very interesting question. And as you mentioned, 
uh, it does loom large in these contract extensions. Because if you just look at it on paper, starting from the moment they were drafted until right now, you see a Pro Bowl for Josh Allen. You see that Josh Allen was an MVP candidate last year. You see that Lamar Jackson was an NFL MVP and that he has multiple Pro Bowls and both of those guys have gone to the playoffs. So their accolades are better. But it must be remembered that Baker Mayfield is on his third regime already in his young career. And once again, he wasn't set up for success, for sustained success until this new group came in. So you cannot judge the Baker Mayfield of even 2018 and 2019 against Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson. You've got eight or nine games with which you can say apples to apples, basically, just in terms of what you have around you, good coaching staffs, and what's coming down the pike. I think in the final analysis, Baker could still very well prove to be the best quarterback of the 2018 class based on what he has going for him now. It certainly didn't look like that in 2019. In fact, the PFF folks, uh, they jumped off of his bandwagon. I mean, they really like flew off of his bandwagon and then they climbed back on it full force when they saw what he could do in the second half of last season under Alex Van Pelt and under Kevin Stefanski. So I still think he can be the best one out of this class based on some of the things that we have seen. I mean, Lamar Jackson, some people still question him as a passer. We know Baker's an amazing passer. Uh, those two guys are dual threat quarterbacks. And it occurred to me, Dan, and I don't know if you've really thought about this that much, but a lot of the quarterbacks that are getting the big contracts these days are the dual threat quarterbacks. Okay. It's the Patrick Mahomes. It's the Josh's, Josh Allen's, the Lamar Jackson's, the Dak Prescott's. And it is the wave of the future to be a dual threat quarterback. And Baker is not that. So I think that that's going to be also factored in. I mean, if you were sitting on the Brown side of the table and you were saying, yeah, but that would be one of the things that you might bring up that, you know, he's a little bit more one dimensional than some of the wave of the future quarterbacks. So that's something to think about. And I think it's also a reason why they want to see what he can do in the first eight games. Have, have defenses found a chink in the armor? Have they found some way to defend him a little bit and take something away? I don't think that's going to happen, but you'd kind of like to see that uh, before you dole out your $40 million a year or whatever, whatever it's going to be. But I still think that Baker Mayfield has a chance to live up to his status as the first quarterback taken in 2018. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there's there's still room to see what Baker can do now that he's got stability. And like I said, I mean, 2018, Josh Allen, his rookie year, 52.8% completion percentage, 10 touchdowns, 12 interceptions. I would worry that had he come to Cleveland with all the instability and just everything that was just wrong with the organization back then, it just, I don't know. I, I don't know that it would have ended the way it has gone for him in Buffalo, where he's able to develop into a guy that completes nearly 70% of his passes. And is a legitimate MVP candidate. It almost feels like Baker was just the right guy to come here. I, I know that sometimes we can get caught up in that and, and maybe too caught up in stuff like that. But I really do think Baker's attitude and just sort of that chip on his shoulder meant all of that stuff, I think, has helped him succeed in Cleveland. And that confidence level that he has has helped him succeed in Cleveland. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I talked to people that were involved in drafting Baker Mayfield at that time, just, you know, in the aftermath of that. And, and that's one of the things that I was told. They needed a guy like that, that could plant his flag and be just that 
cocky guy that could kind of drag this team up from the doldrums and just year after year after year of losing and just take this city by storm and be the leader that he was. That had a lot to do with why they drafted him. Having said that, I do think that Josh Allen could have succeeded here, but like you said, would he have survived the turmoil? He could have succeeded here had they chosen the right coach for him from the start, or at least, you know, fairly quickly after his first year. He, he could not have floundered for three years and then tried to get it together. But if you're going to draft a quarterback like a Josh Allen, then you have to be willing to play to his dual threat strengths. The Browns would have had to be willing to do that. And that was another thing when I talked to the PFF folks about Josh Allen, they were like, we just underestimated his ability as a dual threat quarterback because his legs are almost as good as his arm. And that's the thing about him that has set him apart early on. I don't think Lamar would have worked here because I don't think that the Browns would have been willing to go that far and made that much of a commitment to a player like that, where you have to completely change who you are and what you do and your coaching staff and your offensive coordinator and your play calling and everything to accommodate a quarterback like that, that is that needs work in the passing game and is primarily a running quarterback. I don't think they were ready for that. There were people in the organization that really liked him a lot. I will say that, but I don't think they were ready to make that kind of commitment. And I don't know if they would have made the Josh Allen commitment to the dual threat game either at that point. All right. Shannon from Lake Charles, Louisiana. Says he read an article last week on NFL.com stating an opinion that the Browns have the best roster from top to bottom in the NFL. So he's got two questions. Uh, hey, Mary Kay, first question. Do you feel the Browns have the best roster overall in the NFL and collectively maybe the best offensive and defensive lines in the NFL? So where do you see this roster? You know, I mean, there's a, a million factors to consider, but just on the surface, how do you see this roster compared to the 31 others in the league? You know, a case can be made that man for man, position by position, they do have the most complete roster in the NFL. I mean, really, when you look at it, receiver, they have some of the best receivers in the NFL. They've got two of the best running backs in the NFL. Arguably the best offensive line in the NFL, some of the best tight ends. Defensively, you know, you've got an, a tremendous defensive line, a good linebacking core, and now I think a potentially great secondary, depending on how some of these guys come back from injuries. The thing that you have to, where you have to really compare apples to apples is the quarterback position, right? I mean, you have to have a quarterback. If you're going to say they have the best roster in the NFL, then your quarterback has to, I mean, like you've got to be Tom Brady, right? I mean, or you've got to be Patrick Mahomes. And I don't think Baker is quite there yet. I think he is one rung down from the super top tier. So a case can be made that across the board, they have the, the, the deepest, strongest roster. But I don't know if you can 100% say that when they don't have the best quarterback in the NFL. And, you know, you have to weigh the quarterback more heavily than you do some other positions. The quarterback can make you or break you. Now, I think he's good enough to take this team to the Super Bowl. I really do. I think he's good enough to take this team to multiple Super Bowls and win them. He's got to get past some really darn good football teams to get there, but I think he can do it. However, when I'm just looking at the roster, 
I don't know if I would put it number one because of that case that I'm making for the quarterback and how good the quarterback is. So what, I would be curious about your thoughts on that, Dan. I'm going to miss somebody, but like, like Tampa's got a great roster, right? Right. You know, and I'm sure there's areas where the Browns are better than them. And there's areas where Tampa's better than the Browns. So I, I think that's sort of what it is. It's like, I, I would take Tampa's linebackers over what the Browns have. Mm-hmm. I would take the Browns offensive line over what Tampa has. Probably Tampa's receivers, but it's close. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, so, I mean, that's just one team. So I think you could go like position by position and uh, with the, all the best rosters in the league and come up like Kansas city, right? We talked about this going into the, the playoff game last year. There were areas where the Browns were better than Kansas city at running back. And they still are running back offensive line. Mm-hmm. Defensive line is, is probably better. Although Kansas city's maybe a little closer than people think if, if Chris Jones and, and the rest of that group is, is healthy and, and able to play. But like, you know, I, I just think it's kind of going position by position and, the Browns are in the discussion, I think, with the most talented rosters in, in the NFL. Mm-hmm. The Rams, probably up there. The, I mean, the Browns took some players from the Rams, so, so that helps them in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I mean they have to be in the discussion. I, I can't sit here and say they definitively are, but I would put a lot of areas of this football team, especially on the offensive side of the ball, I'd put a lot of areas of this football team up against almost any roster. Yeah. And the second part of that question was about the offensive line and the defensive lines. And once again, I do think uh, that their offensive line stacks up with anybody in the NFL for the most part. I do think, and I've said this on a number of occasions, that we have to take into account they did not play defensive juggernauts last season. They did not. They did not play a ton of really good pass rushers. I mean, I can count on it just, I mean, a couple of fingers, the great pass rushers that they faced last season, right? Dan, I mean, like when you think about it, how many amazing pass rushers they they faced a good rush against Baltimore, Pittsburgh. I, I thought Kansas City did a nice job in the playoff game, but for the most part, they they played some very very challenged defenses, including when we're talking about run defenses, they played the thirty second, thirty first, thirtieth and 29th run defenses last year. I think some of that needs to be taken into account when you're grading the offensive line and whether or not they are the best in the NFL or, and whether you're grading when you're grading other things as well, but there are going to be weak defenses every year. Teams don't invest a ton in their defenses. The Browns are one of the few teams in the NFL. Although I will say the AFC North is really good about defense. AFC North teams care about their defenses. A lot of teams don't, but the Browns have invested heavily in their defense and they will have a really, really good one this year. But every year you're going to run into what you think should be really good football teams and they have bad defenses. Sometimes they can overcome that and sometimes they can't. Kansas City, for the most part, got by without a great defense in the past. Offensive and defensive lines, let me say, I think the offensive line stacks right up there amongst the best. And we'll know more this year when they play better football teams, presumably defensive line. I think there are still some question marks. A lot depends on how Jadavian Clowney is going to play for the Cleveland Browns this year. Who is he? And what is he? That will dictate a lot of how good this defensive line is. 
then you also have two new tackles. From the looks of it, it looks like it's going to be really good, and, and it's deep at that position, so you'll be able to rotate guys in. But I think it's just, it comes down to, really, in my mind, how good is Jadavian going to be? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think if, if Clowney starts every game and, and plays like he did when he was, you know, his final year in Houston, and even in Seattle a little bit, he showed flashes of that. That's a really good defensive line. The defensive tackle position right now, past Malik Jackson, it's kind of like, okay, there's a lot of guys there. We just need to see who steps up and, and plays well. There's, there's nobody there that I'm really like excited about outside of Malik Jackson. And he's what, 31, I think. Mm-hmm. And had a Liz Frank injury a couple of years ago. So th- there's a lot of question marks in the defensive tackle room. I think there's upside there, but, but there's certainly question marks there. And, and that's why maybe I, I would not say they have the best defensive line in football. And San Francisco is going to be healthy this year too. And they've, they've still got a pretty good defensive line, even with some of the losses that they've had. Uh, they're, they're coming back healthy. So, so that's one area where the Browns still kind of have a lot to prove. There were some roster questions, so let's get to some of those. Robert Seltzer from El Paso, Texas. Hey, Mary Kay, somewhere it was mentioned. I don't, this was probably me. Somewhere it was mentioned Kendaryl Hodge may have the inside track to be the third wide receiver due to his size and athletic ability. He can, seize, he can see that. But Rashard Higgins has, of course, enjoyed that special chemistry with Baker Mayfield over the last few years. Will that play a part in the decision-making? You know what? Well, first of all, Robert, thank you for coming through with great questions for us on a weekly basis. So we really appreciate that. I will say this, and we've talked about this before on this podcast, and I think it's going to hold true. I don't think you're necessarily going to be locked into one third receiver. I think that you've got a number of guys uh, that will be on that field in different packages and different situations. Some days it's going to be Kadero. Some days it's going to be Richard, some downs and distance, some series it's going to be donovan people's jones and there are other times it will be anthony schwartz if he comes along and comes back from this hamstring injury that he's been set back by so i think you've got several guys that can play that role i do think that each of them they have their strengths and they have reasons why they should get on the field richard is obviously the chemistry and he gets open and he catches touchdown passes that's very meaningful Kaderil, again, he's got great size, really good speed, gives you that down, downfield threat. And, and he's, you know, he should be a physical guy. He can block. You know, there are times you're going to want him on the field. Donovan Peoples-Jones showed tremendous promise last year, big playability, and I think he's going to take a big step up this year. Anthony Schwartz, you might just want to get him out there occasionally if he can handle it for the speed. I mean, you can't coach that kind of speed. So it will be incumbent about uh, upon these guys to battle it out and to prove that they should be the one that gets the most reps. But I don't necessarily think you're going to have one guy that you can like make a t-shirt for him that says I'm the third wide receiver for the Cleveland Browns. That, that, that's going to be a fun battle to watch, but I do think all of those guys are, are going to get plenty of playing time in that receiver room. So the Browns have this decision to make at some point with Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry. And Jeffrey P. from San Ramon, California, had a question about that. Uh, hey, Mary Kay, if Odell Beckham Jr. isn't brought back, say, next offseason, do you think that would have a negative impact with Jarvis Landry and how he views the Browns? Can he separate the business side from the personal, given how close he is with Odell Beckham? 
And I guess you could flip that, right? If the Browns made the decision to part ways with Jarvis after this season, would it have a negative effect on Odell or can those guys kind of separate, you know, why the team would do that? Yeah, I think they can separate it. Obviously they would like to win a Super Bowl together. That's been a dream of theirs for a very long time since they were at LSU together. That is what they want to do. But from a business and economic standpoint, after this year, they may or may not be able to stay together on the same football team. Their salaries will add up to more than $31 million next year. They will both be turning 30 in November. And there's nothing wrong with 30, especially nowadays. Uh, You know, you can play a very high level of football as a receiver at the age of 30. Of course, it depends on the player. When I watch Odell Beckham Jr. right now and see how fast he's running on the treadmill and doing the different things that he's doing, he certainly doesn't look like he's coming off of a surgery and he doesn't look like he's about to turn 29. He looks like a very young football player. So age is relative. It it is how the player is passing the exercise science tests and all the different things, the eyeball tests and all that sort of thing. My feeling on these two guys is, let's say they take them to the AFC championship game this year or even the Super Bowl and they win it. I mean, if, if these two guys are an enormous part of why the Browns are successful in 2021, the momentum will be there to bring them back in 2022 to try to repeat it and do it all over again, even though they will be turning 30 and they have high contracts. They don't have much dead cap space. Odell will have none after this year and Jarvis will have $1.5 million in dead cap space after this season heading into 2022. That means that you can try to renegotiate their contracts. If you don't feel that you want to pay them the $15 million and the $16.5 million that they're due. If they want to come back and do again, what they did in 2021, which everyone thinks is going to be tremendous success. Maybe they would be willing to shave a few million off their contract in a year when you're going to be now paying Denzel Ward, Baker Mayfield, Nick Chubb, Wyatt Teller. If they want to keep the band together and win a Super Bowl, and that's what becomes important to them as they enter the back nine of their career, then maybe they would be willing to take a little bit of a pay cut, not a huge one. There's pride involved. These are pro bowlers, maybe even potential Hall of Famer. So there will be pride involved. Maybe they will be willing to take pay cuts. And then also the salary cap will be going up uh, in 2022. The, the ceiling though is only 208 million in 2022. So it's not like all of a sudden the TV contracts are going to kick in and the salary cap is going to be $230 million in 2022. You still have to watch your pennies for sure. Their salaries from a top 10, top 12, top 13 standpoint, they're not going to look that astronomical in 2022. I mean, they're going to be down the list because those receiver salaries are going way, way up. So by 2022, if they have taken this team to the AFC Championship game, the Super Bowl, whatever, those salaries might not look that bad, given what you have, you know, with the cap and all of that. So I'm not going to rule out them coming back, and I'm not going to rule out them coming back at their salaries that they're due to be paid in 2022, but there will be some wiggle room there will be opportunities to be creative with, with how you manage that. Okay. Two more here. This one comes from the 802 area code. And I think this is an interesting question. Someone we haven't really heard anything about uh, since his season ended last year. And the Browns have certainly gone a different direction at his position, but from the 802 area code, Hey, Mary Kay, do you think Olivier Vernon will ever play again? 
Oh, that's a good question. He had, he had a really nice season for the Browns last year. He graded out well. Uh, he played well. He got stronger as the season went along. And he really came through for the Browns when they needed him to, when Miles Garrett was not himself in the second half of the season because of his asthma, because of his COVID, just lingering symptoms that he had. Uh, so good for Olivier. And I actually think they would have brought him back uh, had he not ruptured the Achilles. That's a tough injury to come back from when you are getting up there into your late 20s, early 30s. That's that's tough. I mean, Grant Delpit looks really good right now, but he's a really young guy. I don't know. I suppose there's a chance that he will at least give it a try. Because, you know, sometimes you just don't want to go out not knowing if you have another season or two left in you. I'm going to say that that he might at least give it a try. So I'm going to say, yes, he's going to try to play football again. So he turns 31 in October, and his last game was, what, January 3rd? Mm-hmm. That's when he suffered the injury. Right. So if you put maybe best-case scenario a 10-month recovery to get back on the field. Right. And that's being pre- that, that would be pretty quick, I think, for an Achilles injury. Yes. You could get back by October, November. I, I've sort of been in the camp of, like, you know, Andrew Barry should make sure he hangs on to that phone number. Right. And just check in with the agent in November or December and see if Olivier would have any interest in, in coming back and being a part-time edge rusher. If he's healthy, if he's right. able to get back on the field, I, I would certainly have an interest in that from, from a Brown standpoint to like, just add another guy who wouldn't have to play a lot. Maybe he could give you a few snaps here or there. If he's healthy, it would be kind of a, a feel good story. And I don't know, maybe it could help you. Well, they certainly liked him. And again, I think they would have brought him back. I don't think anybody expected that that would have been the case, but he really rose to the occasion and they loved everything about him. He was a team player. He did what they wanted and he was a a great fit in the locker room. He showed leadership. And so I I don't think they will lose that phone number. I I don't think they will. And again, we don't know what's going to happen yet with Jadavian Clowney or Tack McKinley. They could by November need somebody else in that rotation. So I think you're onto something there, Dan. Okay. Last one. This has to do with expectations. It comes from the two, two, four area code. The hype this year is certainly different than 2019. And our football insider subscriber thinks based much more upon the solid management player acquisition, a good roster that it's going to be a better year. However, it is starting to feel like anything other than a trip to the Super Bowl will be a failure. So Hey, Mary Kay, what should we consider a realistic measure for success for the Browns this year? Is it Super Bowl or bust? No, I think that this team has an opportunity to go to the Super Bowl this year because they're built for it. And and we've talked about that many times before on this podcast. This is the version of the team that is poised and built to go to the Super Bowl. This is the offense that you would want to be able to get there. And this is the defense that you hope would be able to get there. So everything's in place to do that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen like that in part, because once again, you've got a really difficult team to get past, to get there in the Kansas city chiefs for sure. And other teams too. And you never really know exactly who's going to emerge. You know, maybe the bills will be really tough to get past as well. Back in the, in the 1980s, the Browns couldn't get past John Elway. You know, I mean, they have to hope that Patrick Mahomes is not their John Elway. That's what you have to do. You have to find a way to solve him 
so that you can get there. I don't think it should be Super Bowl or bust. I think they should aim for that. I think they have a chance. I actually think at least getting to the AFC championship game and having an opportunity to maybe face the Chiefs there uh, would be, I, I think you would have to consider that a very wildly successful season. Well, and that's sort of a, an apt comparison because there's a lot of John Elway and Patrick Mahomes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For yeah. Randomly, I was just watching some John Elway highlights like a couple of weeks ago. And mm-hmm. you kind of realize there's a lot for all the comparisons we make from Mahomes. There is a lot of John Elway in there when he gets out there to create. The Browns should be approaching this season trying to win the Super Bowl. This might be one of their best opportunities with the talent on the roster. That should be their expectation. Mm-hmm. But I think if you get to the AFC title game and come up short, there's going to come a time in the next year or two where it is definitely, hey, if you don't win the Super Bowl, that's a disappointment. And I just, I think this year is too soon for that. Yeah. And then the other thing is, even if you do get there, then of course, you're, you're probably going to be dealing with Tom Brady, Bruce Arians and the Tampa Bay Bucks. I would think, I mean, there's a darn good chance uh, that that's what you would have to do. You know, I'm going to say getting to the AFC championship game would be a really, really amazing season. It would be very exciting. It would be back to those Bernie Kosar years. Again, this defense is built to solve Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, but it's not going to be easy. It's certainly not going to be easy and it's going to be a heck of a battle. And we might get a sneak preview of it in week one of the season. Okay. Let me throw one more at you. This is, this is kind of a, this is a different one. So Scott and Doug and I did the true or false and yes or no thing from Monday's pod. And one of the questions was, I think it was true or false. Justin Gilbert is the worst Browns draft pick since they returned. So we kicked that around a little bit and we actually decided it's like a whole four hour podcast to try and figure out who the worst Browns draft pick was. I don't think any of us said Gilbert was the guy. Corey Coleman was in the mix. I threw out Johnny Manziel. And so from the two one six area code, they just want to know, they, they want you to weigh in on this, who you think the worst draft pick since 99 might have been who sticks out to you. I'm going to say Johnny Manziel. I'm going to say Johnny Manziel because in my mind, a quarterback trumps a cornerback uh, just in terms of the value and whether or not your team is set back. I mean, putting your eggs in Johnny Manziel's basket, even for a number of years, even for the short time that they did, it's a setback. It's a setback for the organization and it prevents you from moving forward when you when you're thinking that maybe he can be your guy and that was a disaster on a number of fronts because they should have known that he was the train wreck that he was okay the signs were all there the signs were there he cleaned up his act for a short period of time heading into that draft but he had to be kind of babysat in order for that to happen they had you know he had to have his hand held and all the signs were there that he had issues in terms of substance use and different things like that. And you cannot make that kind of, mis- of a mistake on a quarterback. You just can't do that. I'm going to go Johnny Manziel. Now, they had similar issues with Justin Gilbert. He had some of, the, some of the same issues that Johnny had, but he's not a quarterback. You can screw up a cornerback, but you don't want to be screwing up a quarterback. So I'm going to go Johnny Manziel. Man. Poor, poor Ray Farmer. He, he draft he drafted a bunch of guys who are still somehow playing in the league, but he also managed to draft 
the two guys that we just discussed in the same first round as potentially the worst first round draft picks or the worst draft picks the Browns have made since they came back. That is a four hour pod, but I'm glad that I'm glad that you and I both agree. And the case I would just make is, Hey, Kyle Shanahan. Yeah. You had Kyle Shanahan in the building. And if you don't draft Johnny and draft somebody else, maybe he sticks around for a little longer. Well, I mean, at that time, if I recall correctly, Kyle liked Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, maybe you end up with Jimmy Garoppolo and maybe he isn't the be all and end all going forward. But I I think that, that Kyle probably could have done some nice things with him. I mean, he did the best that he could with what he had to work with, but there wasn't much to work with there. I mean, it set back the organization. They they lost Kyle Shanahan. (laughs) They lost, right. I mean, they lost Kyle Shanahan over it. And when you talk about a setback, if that had gone differently and they realized what they had in Kyle at that time, Kyle would be the head coach of the Cleveland Browns right now. Okay. So not only would they not have had made the mistake on Johnny Manziel, they wouldn't have lost Kyle and Kyle would have gone on to become the head coach of the Cleveland Browns because he was that good. Then the signs were all there that he was going to be an amazing head coach and he loved it here. I think he would have ended up, ended up being the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. So it was very costly from that standpoint too. All right, Mary Kay, I'm going to test your memory here. Oh God. We're going to connect some dots. Okay. Do you remember who replaced Kyle Shanahan? Yes. Yes. John DeFilippo, right? Yep. John DeFilippo. Okay. So then John DeFilippo ends up in Minnesota as the offensive coordinator until he gets fired and gets replaced by Kevin Stefanski, who is now the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. It yeah. all just, it all just comes full circle. Yep. The, Running the Kyle Shanahan system Yeah. in Cleveland. Yeah. You're right. And so, I mean, really, when you look at it, I mean, they ended up with sort of a version of Kyle Shanahan. I mean, the reason why Kevin Stefanski got this job and is who he is, is because he, he was able to run that Gary Kubiak Shanahan system. So they actually got a version of Kyle Shanahan in some ways in, in Kevin Stefanski, but they didn't have to wait six years to do it. They had him right here. Does that mean that Johnny Manziel gets some credit for Kevin Stefanski? Oh, that's a this is like that, Kevin Bacon's six degrees <laughs> of separation. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess you could say, yeah, I guess you could, yeah, okay. So and then so then Ray Farmer. So then and Ray we, Farmer and yeah, look, this is <laughs> yes, we can give Ray Farmer deserves credit for Kevin Stefanski ending up here ultimately. After all these years, we finally yeah. got Ray Farmer a victory. There we go. We got him off the hook, which is a great place to end up on our Hey Mary Kay edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Now, all those questions came from our football insider subscriber questions. And to get involved in that, go to cleveland.com slash Browns. It's the blue banner at the top of the page. And of course, make sure you're subscribed to our pod. We're going to be coming at you five days a week still all throughout the offseason. And we're going to be replaying some of the roundtables we've done this offseason. So if you missed those or really loved those and want to listen to them again, you'll get to hear a few of those throughout July. All right, Mary Kay, I'll talk to you later. Sounds good.